Good morning, my name is Tommy Allen and welcome to the online teaching ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church. This morning we'll be continuing with our series on the Jesus Storybook Bible by looking at a passage from Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, we're doing this past series on the Jesus Storybook Bible. And you know, it, we're, we're preaching from the real Bible, but you open the Jesus Storybook Bible and it will say based on you know, this or that, you know, Genesis 12 or, or Genesis 22. And basically this sermon in the Jesus Storybook Bible is based on almost the whole book of Isaiah. And so when I looked at that and I thought, how in the world am I going to preach a sermon about the whole book of Isaiah? I was a little bit overwhelmed. So with all of that said, I thought I would open us this morning uh, with a call to worship from the book of Isaiah. And then we will jump right in. So hear the word of God. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would um, be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. So um, I would just remind you that we, um, we had in-person worship last week and our next in-person worship is at the end of the month, the first Sunday of Advent. I believe that's November 29th and Christmas Eve. And we have a session meeting uh, coming up and that's elders, if you're not familiar with Presbyterian church government. And during that session meeting, we will actually um, be making decisions. It's, an, it's a, like an ongoing basis, sort of the, the, the ball's always moving and the goalpost is always moving. So with that said, um, this morning, as we look at the book of Isaiah, you know, it, I thought I would open with this question. And the question is this, is, as you have, if you have been following along with this series in the Jesus Storybook Bible, where we started at Genesis with creation and we've worked our way up to this point, what would be your biggest takeaway at this point? Now, you don't need to pause it. I mean, if you want to, you can, or you can talk about that after this, if you're meeting with a home group right now. And I thought my biggest takeaway so far, besides the fact that every story whispers his name, is the fact that basically um, God's sovereignty is always working toward our good and his glory. In, in other words, God, when we talk about sovereignty, it means that God is is governs all his creatures and all their actions is that he uses everything even the sinful actions of humanity and tragedies and all these things he weaves them all together into this tapestry that accomplishes what he wants to accomplish and so over and over we saw him using tragic events we saw him using tragically sinful people of course adam that's he started it all and then we we looked at noah and we looked at abraham we looked at moses and david right remember samuel preached about david and his sin with bathsheba david was a man after god's own heart and yet god used all that and uses all that 
in order to bring about his purpose, ultimately uh, to, to bring about the savior of the world, to, to bring Jesus to us and to save us from our sins. And so I've just been reminded that, that God is constantly at work and that he's just as present in providence, that is his working over time and through history as he is in miracle. And so along the way, as God, as we look at these stories, we've gotten to a point now where it's sort of transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God has sent prophets to Israel. Because as Israel has matured as a nation, they have also drifted as a nation. I think I mentioned last time that, that basically we've gotten to a point where Israel is sort of almost at her lowest point. That, that um, God, that, that basically when you look at the, the prophets, they bring two messages really, um, all of them do. And Isaiah more than most is the two messages they bring are judgment and hope, right? Judgment for your sins, judgment for your rebellion, judgment for, for not following the covenant, but also hope that God is the one ultimately who will fulfill the covenant. And um, interestingly enough, Isaiah is, is one of the longest books in the Bible. It's one of the most complicated books in the Bible. I mean, it's one of those kind of books where you're reading it and you, you find you've drifted off somewhere and you you're like have to pull yourself back. Um, on one hand. On the other hand, it's got some of the most clear passages in the whole Bible about God's intentions for humanity and for the world. And so the book, um, the, the sermon in the G Jesus Storybook Bible is entitled Operation No More Tears. And why would they say that? It's because of this clarity that Isaiah gives us. And so let me give you just sort of as a summary of the whole book. You're going to have to follow along with me here is that basically the reason the book culminates um, with or, or talks about that being Operation No More Tears is that it culminates basically with a rescued family of God composed of a people from all nations. So you have a rescued family of God composed of a people from all nations who are experiencing and participating in the renewal of all creation. In, in other words, the end of the book of Isaiah sounds an awful lot like the book of the end of Revelation, where God makes all things new and every tribe, tongue, and nation is there, right? In, in other words, nothing in Revelation, it's not new. That all the way back in Isaiah, God said, here is what I am doing in the world. The difference here we see, it's not different, but, but here's where we hear it really clearly for the first time, is that you see a rescue family composed of people from every nation participating in a renewed uh, creation. And all of this is accomplished by this person called the suffering servant. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The book of Isaiah basically divides pretty cleanly into two parts. You have chapters 1 through 39, which more or less are about judgment. There is certainly hope woven throughout chapters 1 through 39. And then chapters 40 through 66, which more or less speak about hope, with some judgment peppered in there as well. So the judgment in chapters 1 through 39, it's judgment because of Israel's idolatry right there, following after other gods. It's judgment because of injustice. And what do we mean by injustice? Well, basically injustice in the Old Testament is when the poor don't get a shake. In other words, it isn't just giving the poor people money. It means when, the, when a poor person goes to court, he or she doesn't get the same representation as a rich person, right? That happens in the United States a lot, by the way. Um, 
other forms of injustice, you know, and I, I thought of this and I thought, you know, how can I trigger everyone who's listening today? And I thought of two examples of things that in the Bible, if they were true, they would be considered injustice. So for example, um, if voter fraud happened in the United States, if people were genuinely stealing votes from good people or they were manipulating the system, that is injustice. On the other hand, things like um, systemic racism, assuming that's true, if it is true, uh, and to the extent that it is true, um, that is injustice. God is concerned about those kinds of things. And then finally, interestingly enough, one of the things that he dings Israel for is basically seeking political solutions to spiritual problems. Sound familiar to you? In other words, um, I don't think I'm stretching it to say it's very similar to our situation today. Very often today, we look at one presidential candidate or the other. We say, man, if this presidential candidate is elected, then the, the country's going to be safe and sound. And if this kind of, you know, presidential candidate is elected, then the country's going to be decent again. Whatever your, your thing is, in Israel, um, rather than trust the Lord, what they tended to do was try to make political alliances with other nations. In other words, God said he would protect them. God said he would, he would uh, provide for them. He would do all things for them. And they're like, yeah, but if we were partners with Egypt, then we could really get all those things. Or if we we're partners with Assyria, we could really get all those things. Or if we we're partners with Babylon, we could get all those things. And every time those things bite them in the backside. You know, so in the same way, to the extent that we trust in our political leaders and political solutions, eventually they, they will fail us. So that's sort of a side note. In chapters 40 through 66 is where you see hope. And what's interesting about chapter 40 is chapter 40 actually takes place about, it starts about 150 years after Isaiah has died. Now, how do we make sense of that? So there's two, two ways that scholars make sense of that. One way is they say that when Isaiah wrote chapters 40 through 66, um, he was simply predicting. He, he was just like laying it out there, like, here's what I see. Um, that's one way to look at it. The other way is some people say that, you know, we read their clues throughout the book of Isaiah that he sealed scrolls and he left them for his disciples. And some people think that what is happening here is that we're still hearing Isaiah's voice, but we're hearing his voice through writings and scrolls and things that he left for his disciples. And so we hear his voice through them. And so at this point in Israel's history, um, in chapter 39, you know, Hezekiah is in charge and Israel has all these problems. And Isaiah says this to him in chapter 39, in verse uh, five, it says, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. That has always bothered me, by the way, that word from Hezekiah. So basically, Isaiah says, because of you and, and your children, basically God is going to carry Israel into exile. Like you think lockdowns for COVID are bad. Imagine being locked down in a foreign country with no internet access. 
bad. And Hezekiah basically says, Whew, well, as long as it doesn't happen on my watch, I'm good. That sort of bothers me. Either way, when you get to chapter 40, um, things change. So you have this, this message of judgment on one hand, and then immediately on, uh, you turn around and you get this message of hope. Now we're looking at chapter 40, and the reason we're looking at chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, is because verses 1 through 11 in chapter 40 are basically like a table of contents for the rest of the book. And so since we have to summarize so much, I thought, why not look at the table of contents? And we see in the table of contents four things. We see first a word of comfort. We see the way of comfort. We see the promise of comfort. And finally, we hear about the ministry of comfort. So a word of comfort, the way of comfort, the promise of comfort, and the ministry of comfort. And I know some of you are thinking that's four points, not three points. Aren't you Presbyterian? And the answer is yes, but you got to cut me some slack because this is so long. So first, a word of comfort. Notice what Isaiah says, chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now remember, by this time, by chapter 40, the way it starts, Israel has been in exile for like a hundred years and it is miserable and they're hopeless and they're desperate and will things ever get better? And God through Isaiah says, comfort Comfort my people, or comfort comfort my people, says your God. In other words, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep your sins are, no matter how far you've gone away from me, um, the covenant I made with you and your fathers still stands. That God has not given up on them, uh, regardless of what they have done, or regardless of how far away from him they feel, he doesn't feel far from them, and he is committed to actually pursue them. You know, for some of you, if you like music, one of my favorite songs in the world, from one of my favorite artists in the world, is a guy named Pierce Pettis. That's P-E-T-T-I-S. And he has a song called God Believes in You. And if you have time after this, maybe listen to that. You can find it on YouTube or Spotify. I am sure God believes in you by Pierce Pettis. That's what he's talking about here. He's like, even if you don't believe in me anymore, even if you've lost your hope, I still believe in you. I still am coming for you. He is like, that Israel's like the prodigal son. And what this word that is being spoken to them is saying is there is still a father who loves you and you still have a home to which you can come. And so he says, comfort, comfort my people. And he says, verse two, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And in Hebrew, it says, speak to her heart. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, what does he mean there? So for, first of all, um, the same is true for us, by the way, of the comfort that God says, comfort, comfort my people. That if you're a Christian and you are feeling lonely and outcast and wounded and afraid, that God himself has not forgotten about you. Hear that. Hear that he still is concerned about you. Hear that he still reaches out to you. But also why, 
why has the the warfare ended here for Jerusalem? Why has her iniquity uh, been pardoned? How has her how are these things happened? And the answer is that this double pardon. Notice it says that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I used to think that meant double punishment, but it doesn't mean double punishment. It doesn't fit the context, and it doesn't fit. God's nature. She's re received double pardon, pardon for her warfare or her rebellion, but also pardon for um, her iniquity. And one of the ways to, to look at that is to pardon for the guilt of her sins. She's guilty of having rebelled against God, but also um, pardon and forgiveness for the, the iniquity or the, the power of sin. In other words, there's guilt that sin that accompanies sin, like the actual guilt for doing things, but there's also the power of sin, iniquity, that, that you, that's just who they are. And God doesn't hold who they are against them. Rather, he will provide for them atonement, and he will provide for them salvation, and he will provide for them forgiveness. How is this accomplished? How does God accomplish forgiveness? And remember, this is the table of contents, chapter 40. You don't really find out uh, how atonement and how forgiveness is accomplished until chapters 52 and 53, when we hear about the suffering servant. Let me read to you. I'm going to read to you all of those, that section, because it's so important to the whole Bible, and it's so central to the gospel of both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So hear what it says in 52, starting at verse 13. God says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Amen and amen, right? That is a very famous passage, but it's also very important, you see, because the way that God would obtain forgiveness for his people 
would be through the actions of this one called the suffering servant. You see, after this, so shortly after chapter 40, God calls Israel to be his servant, but by four, chapter 48, they've failed. And they're not fit to be his servant. They're not fit to atone for their own sins. So it must be of grace. Someone else must do it. And so he sends the suffering servant who would bear their grief. And on one hand, he would bear their iniquity. On the other hand, he would make them righteous. In other words, he would make them right with God, the actions of this suffering servant. And we find out who that suffering servant is later in the New Testament. In fact, we, we look first at the word of comfort and we find out who the suffering service, servant, servant is by way of the way of comfort. Notice the way of comfort. In verse 3, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you see three voices here. We don't know who all of these voices are. In this passage, there are three voices. But this particular voice, well, the first thing we see what the voice says, the, the first thing the voice says is that God himself is coming and that God himself is coming like this great dignitary. That's the language that the Jews there. A dignitary would come through the ancient Near East and his retinue would go before him and flatten the ground and make sure that the road was good and there was nothing in the way of him getting there. And so on one hand, God himself is that dignitary. God, the king will come to them. And secondly, all flesh will see it. In other words, that God is coming to rescue them. God is coming to deliver them, but it's not going to be from afar. He's just not going to speak it or some, you know, scatter some fairy dust and they, they will in fact be delivered. That God himself is going to come and take care of business. Now, this particular voice, we know whose voice this is because the New Testament tells us. The New Testament tells us that this voice is the voice of John the Baptist ultimately that John the Baptist is the one who makes a way for the king who would come. And John the Baptist is the one who points to, to the suffering servant and actually gives him a name. His name is Jesus. Remember, John saw him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus is the one also in whom the glory of the Lord is revealed. I love John chapter 14 for a number of reasons, right? Remember, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and where I'm going, you cannot come right now. And um, Thomas and Philip say, you know, where, where are you going? And we don't know the way. And he says, you do know the way. And they say, come on, explain to us. And he basically says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And a little bit later, Thomas says, um, you know, how, show us the Father. And you get this idea that Jesus sort of like rolls his eyes and says, Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, Jesus is the way of comfort. Jesus is the one to whom the voice points, but Jesus is also the way himself. Jesus is the revelation of all of the glory of the Father. And I remember years ago reading in... Um, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, page 113, for some reason that sticks in my head. And he talks about the fact that, that God could have been happy without 
ever creating us. He would have been fine. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he would just be um, in fellowship together forever for eternity. But as soon as God created us, and as soon as he covenanted with us to save us, and as soon as he became a man incarnate in the person of Jesus, he forever bound his happiness to our happiness. That Jesus, um, that God himself will not be completely happy until every one of his children, every name in the book of life has been saved and delivered from their sins. Are you among them? You see, the next thing we see in this passage is that the, the not only do we see the way of comfort, but the next thing you have is a promise of comfort. And it doesn't sound like it at first, I, I think. Notice it says in verse six, a voice says anonymously, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Verse eight, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So on one hand, it sounds like a little bit despairing, right? That just people, the, the, you know, the wind blows and the flower grass withers and the flower fades. And when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely people are grass. In other words, what he's saying here, among other things, is that human glory, human success, human beauty, everything about us is fleeting. Everything about us um, eventually uh, it withers up and disintegrates. I mean, one of the things that's always interesting to me, especially if you've been a pastor in the same church for a long time, is to watch people age and, and to watch, to, to do a memorial service for someone who's passed away and to look back at their life and see when they were young and how they were just so like, I remember it's being at memorial services and seeing guys who were fighter pilots in World War II, and they just looked so young and vigorous and healthy. But then by the time they, they passed away, they were, they were withered like grass. Wow, that's, that, that's pretty depressing on one hand. But I think what Isaiah is saying here is that God knows that. God understands that. God understands your despair. God understands your frailty. God understands that you are apt to wither like grass. And in spite of all that, regardless of what seems to be going on sometimes, regardless of how frail you feel, regardless of how helpless you are, God understands and he will keep his promises. You got notice in verse eight says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I think sometimes I hear this quoted pretty often, this passage, and oftentimes I think people leave out a crucial word. Oftentimes you hear it quoted like this, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Or the word of God will not come to it back to itself void. That's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah says the word of our God will stand forever. That this God who has committed himself to us and who has made promises to us will keep them forever and ever and ever. That should encourage us. That no matter what it looks like outside, no matter what lockdown is coming, no matter who becomes president, no matter what happens to us physically or emotionally, that God is going to keep his promises ultimately. And that leads finally to the last part here, the last word, the last comfort we have here is that God not only offers us comfort 
by way of his promises, but I think he also expects us to extend that comfort to all people. I mean, honestly, as I've been a pastor for 25 years or so now, and I'm, I'm, I've never ceased to be amazed at how quickly Christians turn inward and care only about themselves and, and how quickly Christians sort of seek their own comfort, frankly, including me. And look at what, the, what we're called to here or what Israel's called to, and ultimately I think we are too. Notice he says, after all this comfort, verse nine, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. In other words, the, the messenger of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is, is a metaphor for all of Israel. Ultimately, I think the church herald of the good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. In other words, this message that you've just received of comfort and this message of God coming in the flesh and this message of the suffering servant who will come and deliver you from your sins, you need to, to shout that from the mountaintops. Because remember, at the by the end of this, this is just a table of contents. By the end, it's all families and all nations that will come streaming in to the city of God and to this renewed creation and our job is to bring this ministry of comfort to other people by way of the gospel what do we bring to them we tell them verse 10 behold the lord comes with might and his arm rules for him behold his reward is with him and his recompense is before him now do you know anyone who feels just like beaten down and would love someone to protect them and would love someone who is looking out for them right isn't that what we look for in political figures who is going to look out for me who's going to take care of my interests and what the gospel says what isaiah is saying here is that when god comes with his might god looks out for you that god's arm is strong and that god will rule rule and his reward is with him and his recompense is before him and not only that but he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Verse 11, he will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. In other words, God has come with might and power. He has overcome sin and death, but he has also come as a shepherd tenderly to lead his flock. Remember what Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That is the God that we have now come to the end of all this to, to, to sort of close out what's not to like about any of this? Who wouldn't embrace this? Who wouldn't want that for themselves? Well, let me read you how the Jesus storybook ends this passage and we'll see. So it says, poor Isaiah, he read God's letter over and over to God's people. That's this book of Isaiah, but no one listened to him at all, ever. They didn't want to hear God's promise. They didn't believe it. Did it sound maybe too good to be true? A story that ends happily ever after? Well, it does sound like a fairy tale, doesn't it? And as anyone will quickly tell you, fairy tales aren't true, or are they? Now, I can answer that question. It, by fairy tales, you mean that God, that there is a God and he, he has a hero, a savior who has come to rescue his people in distress. And it looks like he dies, but in the end, he saves everything. And all of his people, all of those who are in distress, who are saved, get their happy ending. Then I would say, yes, fairy tales are true. 
and the gospel people sometimes say oh the gospel that's fairy tale that is in some sense the greatest compliment they can give to the gospel because what that means is the happy ending is coming and so let me leave you with this you know i don't know who said this first ever but i think of this quote all the time and basically it's this that in the end everything will be okay and if everything isn't okay now then it's not the end okay let me say that again in the end everything will be okay and if everything is not okay then it is not the end think about that let me pray father i do pray that you would come and you would comfort your people you would give them encouragement that you would also give them a zeal that you would give them a power that they would fear not that, that we would proclaim this message of a god who comes to save uh, to all those around us in christ's name we pray all these things amen and amen Whew. typically at this time in the worship service if we're having a worship service we would stand and sing the doxology and then we would have an offertory except under the current phase that we're in now we actually have a tray at the back of the church if you haven't been here either way this is the time we would give and if you're interested in giving you can find the the instructions in the comment section below or in the description below and i just want to say thank you many of you have continued to give and be very faithful to our ministry and i just can't thank you enough for that so i thought i would end today with a profession of faith from the heidelberg catechism and the profession of faith that I thought I would end with is from the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 70. And question number 70 asks this question. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? Answer. To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven my sins because of Christ's blood, poured out for me in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed me and set me apart to be a member of Christ so that I more and more become dead to sin and increasingly live a holy and blameless life. Amen and amen. Let me send you from this virtual place with this benediction saying that I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Leave this place in the knowledge of that peace. Amen and amen.